Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wool on us. Painting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. In January of 2012, uh, just a day after it became clear that Congress had failed to pass Hollywood's preferred copyright bill called SOPA, there was a now infamous raid on a mansion in New Zealand uh, done jointly by New Zealand and U.S. law enforcement to apprehend Kim.com, the guy behind the super popular file sharing file backup site known as Mega Upload. Uh, law enforcement in uh, multiple countries seized basically all of the assets of Mega Upload and of .com and basically killed the entire company. They threw .com and his colleagues in jail and moved to deport him to the U.S., a country that he's never been to in his life, in order to face criminal copyright infringement charges. Uh, from the beginning, uh, I've made it clear that I'm somewhat skeptical of the charges against .com and Mega Upload. Uh, from the original indictment, I pointed out that all, for uh, all the talk of a mega conspiracy, which was written throughout the uh, the criminal complaint, uh, that they, they sure were theatrical, but they didn't seem to fit with what copyright law actually said about criminal copyright infringement. Historically, lawsuits against these kinds of sites had been civil cases rather than criminal, and it seemed like the Justice Department skipped over a few parts of the law to make their case, uh, perhaps relying on the almost cartoonish biography that the MPAA had written for .com as a kind of um, Dr. Evil. The legal fallout from that case has continued to today uh, across the globe. .com is still, last we checked, in New Zealand, almost five years after all of this went down, still fighting extradition in an effort that has dragged on for quite some time with some ups and downs. Um, the criminal case in the U.S. is basically on hold while all that plays out. However, um, because there's a statute of limitations on how long the U.S. government can hold on to seize property, it began a separate legal process to, in an effort to keep all of uh, .com's assets, including money and a bunch of other stuff, using what's known as civil asset forfeiture, uh, by which they literally sue the stuff rather than the person. It makes no difference whether or not the actual owner of the stuff has been convicted of a crime. The government just needs to allege that it was somehow associated with criminal behavior. And while people can make claims on the stuff, it's incredibly complicated to actually get stuff back uh, once a civil asset for forfeiture process has begun. And the court in .com's case made it even more ridiculous by declaring, uh, in response to a request from the Justice Department, that Kim.com be declared a fugitive from the law because he was fighting extradition, meaning that he's even less able to prevent the Justice Department from getting all of his stuff, no matter what happens with the rest of his case. That is, even if he's eventually found not guilty, the government could potentially still keep his stuff if the asset forfeiture goes through. Meanwhile, uh, about a month ago, it seemed like a bit of deja vu to some extent as another website called Kick-Ass Torrents was taken down. And its alleged operator, Artem Volin, a Ukrainian, was arrested in Poland and also charged with criminal copyright infringement in the U.S., 
The details were similar here in many ways. Again, suggesting a theory of criminal copyright infringement that simply isn't in the law as far as we can tell. Uh, and with Kick-Ass Torrents, the story seemed even more crazy since that site doesn't, doesn't even host any content at all, unlike Mega Upload, and is basically just a search engine. Now, there's another thread tying .com to and Volin together, and it's that they're both represented by lawyer Ira Rothkin, uh, who has been on the front lines of various copyright legal battles for many, many years. Uh, his name pops up in lots of famous cases, often fighting for consumers and innovation, and frequently against the legacy entertainment industry. Uh, he was a lawyer defending Replay TV, Record TV, MP3 Board, um, he's also defended Torrent Spy and ISO Hunt. And basically, if there's been a major copyright lawsuit in this area, Rothkin probably is somehow connected to it. So we're thrilled to have Ira Rothkin joining us today to talk about what's going on with uh, both of these cases, the Kim.com and Artem uh, Volin cases, and related issues around copyright litigation and kind of what's going on there. So welcome, Ira. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Mike, for that wonderful introduction, and uh, I appreciate it. And uh, I do start feeling like an old man when I <laughs> go ahead and hear some of those cases that you've described. But uh, that was a an excellent summary of of those cases, and and uh, so I think we're off to a, a an interesting start. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's start with the. I guess you know the, the, these things keep changing, but but some of the most recent stuff is is the the. Uh, appeals court ruling in the with kim.com uh, around the the asset forfeiture the the court just upheld the lower court ruling which basically gives the US government the right to take his assets many of which are are still being held in like Hong Kong and New Zealand I guess um, and uh, basically you know the court agreed with the DOJ that by resisting extradition.com is effectively a fugitive um, w what's going on there <laughs> Well, it's uh, a draconian law that was promulgated by Congress at the request of the Department of Justice. Um, and we're now stuck with this very kind of offensive language. And uh, we are going to go ahead and seek what's known as an in-bank review, mm -hmm. where we're going to ask the entire Fourth Circuit to take a look at this case. But there, there are a lot of consequences. This is not only an important issue for Kim.com and the other defendants, but it's an important issue for society, U.S. society as a whole. What you have is a situation where if you go ahead and you've never been to the United States, you go ahead and you oppose extradition. If you think, for example, like in New Zealand, that the United States cannot show dual criminality, which is the standard for extradition, to be successful and if you have weighty defenses and if you go ahead and assert your rights and even if your rights are what's known as merely the rule of speciality where ultimately you may lose extradition but under the rule of speciality the United States or whoever the extradition extraditing party is um, cannot deviate from the basis for your extradition in order to get that you have to fight extradition but you can't right. fight extradition in the U.S.'s view because if you do, they're just going to go ahead and take all your assets. So we have an important issue. It's a global issue. It touches on um, Congress's power. It touches on treaties between the United States and foreign nations. Uh, 
It touches on sovereignty of foreign nations, and it certainly touches on the due process rights of those who are accused. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we've written lots of stuff separately from this case, just about civil asset forfeiture in general, um, which, you know, seems to be problematic. It's often used just kind of as a way for, for law enforcement to get free stuff. I mean, there, there are even quotes of law enforcement talking about civil asset forfeiture um, as a process of going shopping for stuff that they need. Um, but, you know, in this case, it, it seems even crazier just because because of the the, the fact that that dot com is is overseas. Um, in the uh, a, a sort of a key point in the appeals court ruling was was this question of jurisdictions, right? So there was the um, and there was a dissent. It was a two to one, you know, a regular three three judge panel um, in an appeals court, and the dissent basically argued that um, that the court couldn't um, uh, couldn't find for. Um, civil asset forfeiture because so much of the stuff was held overseas and um, effectively the only thing they could do is say that they agreed and then um, but but that that decision wouldn't be binding because eventually the issue would have to be decided elsewhere where the assets were whether that's New Zealand or um, Hong Kong how how big a deal do you think the the jurisdiction question is it's a very big deal. It's going to be one of the core issues um, once, hopefully, if there's an in-bank proceeding uh, or if the Supreme Court were to uh, accept the case. Um, we have something here which is beyond just theoretical. We know, for example, that Hong Kong's law is antagonistic to fugitive disentitlement. Mm -hmm. So the United States court in granting fugitive disentitlement is giving nothing more than an advisory ruling that's non-binding uh, in the court, in the jurisdiction where the assets are located. Um, this is, you know, we clearly believe that this is a jurisdictional issue and uh, one doesn't have to guess about it because uh, Hong Kong law and precedent is such that uh, they will not honor uh, a fugitive disentitlement default. It's antagonistic to their due process and, and to the rights of, of accused in Hong Kong. So we're hoping that uh, we'll get a reversal here. And at the very minimum, um, we hope that, uh, you know, the court clarifies this. And, uh, and if they clarify it in a way that's antagonistic to basic uh, rights of a defendant, then, you know, Congress can take action to fix the law. Yeah. Um, and I, I agree it's an important issue. There is, I mean, if it's true in that case that, that um, you know, Hong Kong probably would not recognize the U.S. ruling and, and there were some um, some noise about New Zealand might not either uh, for the assets that are held there. Um, there is a question, though, of does the U.S. ruling matter that much um, directly for, for this case if, if Hong Kong and New Zealand aren't going to um, abide by that ruling? It sure does. And, and yes, uh, we also think that uh, New Zealand's antagonistic. We provided evidence to the court of a, of a judge's uh, judgment indicating that. Uh, yes, it is. And here's why. Um, the United States is trying to win this case on procedure, not on merit. Mm -hmm. So they knew or should have known that New Zealand and Hong Kong would not honor fugitive disentitlement. 
Um, the United States itself didn't honor fugitive disentitlement until Congress created a law after the Supreme Court found that type of activity to be unconstitutional. So what the United States did here was they went in, they said, let's just go ahead and get all the assets listed, you know, on a five or six page document. And let's go ahead and, and try to implement this draconian fugitive disentitlement law so that Kim.com and the others default. Because they want to know that if the New Zealand courts decide to extradite Kim.com and the others, he cannot use his own funds to defend himself when he comes to the United States. Because the United States at that point would basically honor its own ruling and would intercept whatever funds came into the United States from Hong Kong or New Zealand. So the United States is essentially playing a game. And the game is um, that we, the United States, do not want Kim.com and the others to be able to use any appreciable funds in the largest criminal copyright case in history. We want you to have to only use the public defender's office. And that's where this gets so offensive. Yeah. And that's what their procedural game is at this point. Yeah, basically just trying to block him from being able to actually defend himself once yes. he gets to a U.S. court, or if he gets to a U.S. court. Yes, I mean, uh, when when we went out, it, let's go back and take a look at what it costs to defend similar types of copyright cases. Uh, let's take a look, for example, at YouTube. YouTube probably mm -hmm. cost Google between 50 and $100 million to defend, and it was a civil case. Yeah. Um, you know, if you look at uh, ISO Hunt, millions of dollars, civil yeah. case. The estimate that I got from a reputable e-discovery vendor, just to be able to do some basic e-discovery for Mega Upload, was between five and ten million dollars. No. And there's only a, a handful of vendors big enough in the United States to handle over 20 petabytes of data. And so what the United States is basically saying is that they don't want this case to be defended on a fair basis. And they know that the public defender's office doesn't have the resources to handle it. Yeah. So More they're playing, they're playing this game. And hopefully the next court to hear this will, will see it for what it really is. We did have a two-to-one split. And the split is on highly technical analyses. But I would have to say that folks cannot avoid the fairness elephant in the room. Yeah. And, and, and we're hoping that the court will reverse. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the points that I've made is, you know, for, for you know, whatever people think of, of Kim.com, um, like this case should still concern you. Like, even if you think that, that he's guilty on the, on the copyright question, which, you know, I disagree with, but even if you do like this separate issue, which is a, it's an entirely separate case. It's something that a lot of people have trouble sort of wrapping their heads around. Like literally it's, it's the U S government suing his stuff. Right? It's, um, it's, uh, you know, I forget the, the exact caption on the case was, you know, basically the government versus all assets listed in appendix a or something like that. Um, and, um, you know, it should be, it should be a, just a, due process concern for for anyone yes 
Particularly, I mean, so we have the situation where these other jurisdictions are likely not going to follow it. We have a situation where it's in a very expensive case to defend and they want to take his money away. But we also have to say that Kim.com and the others have very robust criminal defenses in the United States mm -hmm. and extradition defenses. And so the default here is particularly stinging because if Kim.com and the others were allowed to actually defend on the merits, we think we'd win. Yeah. You know, you have to see what happened right here. It wasn't like the court said, um, okay, um, it's a split decision. We'll go ahead and default some of the money, but not others. Right. Uh, what the court basically do, did was they took every dime. So no matter how radical of a copyright extremist you are, it's hard to believe you would think there isn't a penny's worth of non-infringing uses of mega upload, so the court would leave a penny out. Right. They didn't. They took every last dime. It was, it was almost like, we're going to take all your money, and what are you going to do about it? It was a shakedown. Yeah. And so it's very draconian. Um, and in, and in uh, New Zealand, there is a statute directly on point. It's called 92B of the Copyright Act in New Zealand. That is a safe harbor for Internet service providers. And unlike the United States, it's not just a civil safe harbor. It's mm. a criminal safe harbor under any theory. And under the, a criminal safe harbor, one doesn't have to disprove criminal liability to avail themselves of a safe harbor. Otherwise, the safe harbor would be illusory. Right. It's not to say that Kim.com and the others, um, you know, they think that they're innocent of any crime. But the statute there is so broad that it is a criminal safe harbor arising out of any user-generated content. So it's very similar to the Communications Decency Act immunity on, on, on the civil side um, that people have in the United States. Right, that basically says, you know, if you're the platform, you are simply not responsible for the uh, actions of, their, of your users. That's exactly right, and that is not limited just to bandwidth providers. It specifically defines the applicability to include cloud storage providers. Right. So it's directly on point. And Mega Upload meets the definition of cloud storage providers under that statute. So you have a weighty extradition defense. You've got a weighty U.S. criminal case defense. And now the United States is punishing them for exercising their rights in a case of first impression. And that's what makes this so offensive to fairness. Yeah. Um, and, and some of that gets to the issue, you mentioned it earlier, but I wanted to dig in a little bit on this, the, the, um, the question of dual criminality, right? So yeah. that's, you know, that's kind of important to the extradition point, right? So you want to discuss that and kind of what that means? Yes. Um, in New Zealand, um, you know, they negotiated an extradition treaty with the United States. Um, it's a typical uh, extradition treaty, and in many extradition treaties, there's this, co this common notion of dual criminality, and that is that in order to extradite somebody from New Zealand under this U.S.-New Zealand treaty, 
not only do you have to show a prima facie case that the accused committed a crime in the United States, but you got to also show that they committed an overlapping or similar crime if it would have been done in New Zealand. Right. So you, you, you use a hypothetical and say, if this conduct would have done been done in New Zealand, would it constitute a crime? And in this situation, the core point is a crime of criminal copyright infringement. And so we, of course, do not think that what happened was a crime in the United States. We got Professor Lessig to write an opinion on that, and he believes that the United States a case in the United States lacks merit. And in New Zealand, there is a host of defenses, including Section 92B. Right. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of others as well. But there's also one other important defense that will obviously be addressed um, in, in upcoming hearings. Uh, we have a hearing starting on August 29th in New Zealand in the high court there for extradition hearing uh, that should probably last about a month and and that is uh, you know section 92b and so you know we think ultimately um, oh I'm sorry the other point is that copyright under the treaty is not an extraditable offense right which seems like a, a big point <laughs> it's a big point now to be fair to the government there was this complicated treaty that many nations entered into in the 2000s mm -hmm. in the United Nations called UNTOC, um, United Nations Treaty on Transnational Organized Crime. And it provides kind of a, an additional basis on which somebody could be extradited where if there's a conspiracy of three or more folks for a crime that's punishable for more than four years. And so there may be a hack right. to the extradition treaty where if they could show, um, you know, a, a criminal copyright conspiracy of three or more folks, they may be able to get around it. But they can't even show direct willful copyright infringement. And they can't show they can get around the Section 92B criminal safe harbor. So we feel very optimistic that once a court does a serious analysis of the United States claims, that uh, ultimately Kim.com and the others will prevail and there'll be no extradition. Right. Now, that obviously creates a paradox because if that occurs then they were right for opposing extradition. <laughs> and New Zealand's a friendly nation. So how does one reconcile a congressional statute which basically says if you don't come to the United States and you oppose, they're claiming you oppose extradition, we could take all your assets with a friendly nation saying they were right for opposing extradition. Yeah. And... So there's a lot of issues that will be dealt with um, in this case, and, and that very well may be one of them. Yeah. Well, I, and I know some of the debate around the extradition um, 
on the New Zealand side was was focused on, you know, whether or not um, it was necessary to kind of go through the um, to, to basically try the case in New Zealand was was sort of the argument, you know, whether or not they actually had to do that or whether or not the U.S. just had to make sort of a good faith um, claim that it, that that uh, what what Mega Upload had done was criminal. Well, it's not a good faith claim. It, it, it's more than a good faith claim. They they have uh, their um, they have a duty of good faith and candor to be fair, right? Um, but um, they have the burden to make out a prima facie case, and we don't think they've done that, right? So. You know, we'll, we'll you know we'll see we'll see what happens as things evolve. The United States um, had an obligation when they went ahead and put on what's known as a record of the case in New Zealand to include materials that would be um, exonerating. And in our view, they didn't do that. They had an obligation to tell the court both sides of the law and they didn't do that and one would ask well why is that why does the united states have that kind of uh, obligation and that's because extradition is kind of a summary process mm -hmm. it's kind of a mini trial and courts will say we're going to trust you united states under this treaty but you got to be honest because if you're not somebody may get extradited erroneously because they're not entitled to discovery. At least that's been the interpretation. Um, we may disagree with that, but they're not entitled to discovery. You're coming to court. You're exercising. Uh, you're coming to court in New Zealand and taking advantage of our resources and our judicial system. You have to be honest with us. So the United States goes into the extradition proceeding. And what's one of the very first things that they do in the extradition proceeding? They cherry pick the takedown requests to show ones that they believe that Mega Upload did not comply with. And, you know, maybe some dozens of them, which Mega Upload thinks were not compliant with the DMCA. Mm -hmm. But what does the United States leave out? Maybe they show a few dozen that haven't been complied with. They leave out the other 15 million that have been complied with. <laughs> So if you go ahead and do a numerator and a denominator mm -hmm. and put the few dozen over the 15 million, you have Mega Upload being better than Ivory Snow <laughs> and the quality of its takedowns. Right. Another thing that the United States does under their duty of good faith and candor, do they come into court and make their primary argument copyright infringement, which it is in the United States? <laughs> no, they don't. What do they do? They come into the court in New Zealand and they argue fraud. Now, U.S. lawyers, nerd lawyers in the United States know that under Dowling, which is a very famous Supreme Court case and others, yep. you can't use fraud and other types of crimes to argue copyright in disguise. Copyright's a unique statute. Congress has paid careful attention to balancing the copyright monopoly with fair use 
and the rights of the accused in the copyright statute. And they're using fraud, and we know you can't use fraud. Um, you have some famous, even La Machia is a case that you could still look at in that particular area. Mm-hmm. And so they argue fraud. And, and uh, we obviously have advised and will continue to advise the New Zealand court that they cannot even argue fraud in the United States. And if you want to extradite it based on fraud, then put it in your ruling because then we'll just win automatically in the U.S. Right. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, um, we've also argued that fraud's not viable in New Zealand and that also that criminal safe harbor for ISPs would still be a, a safe harbor against a fraud claim. Um, we also know, interestingly enough, that the kind of fraud that they were arguing was the state court kind of common law fraud. Mm-hmm. In the United States, if they were to argue that in court, a website like a Google or even a mega upload would win. Yeah. They would win on a motion to dismiss because the Communications Decency Act immunity protects yep. ISPs from state court uh, crime theories, which yep. is what um, this common law fraud is. So, you, you know, we would win on that in the United States under the CDA immunity as well as preemption. So there's a lot of problems with what the U.S. is doing. They don't tell the court when they're making these fraud theories in New Zealand. Oh, and by the way, there's no overlap with the U.S. because we can't allege this in the United States. <laughs> right. They don't say that to them. They don't They don't come across and say, well, why you might want to not consider some of their theories, which is what we believe the duty of good faith and candor requires. Oh. So, you know, I we could talk for hours on the parade of ridiculous things that are going on in New Zealand. Um, you know, but we do have um, hearings coming up. The high court... Um, We'll be taking a fresh look at the extradition request and defenses, and uh, we're hopeful that they'll go ahead and find in favor of of Kim.com and the others. Um, yeah, the other issue, I mean, you've discussed so many different things that are, are weird and crazy and, um, you know, questionable about this case. But but the one that I focus on a lot is, is the underlying theory that just the criminal copyright infringement um, claim in the first place. And, and this is another one that if you're not sort of deep in the weeds <laughs> in sort of copyright issues, um, may seem a little bit confusing, but, um, but I think it's worth kind of digging in a little bit. And it, it's this question of, you know, what's known as secondary liability, um, where, you know, in, um, civil cases, if you, you know, so, so secondary liability or intermediary liability is the concept of, you know, whether or not, um, a site can be responsible for the actions of their users, right? And so we have certain protections or immunity or safe harbor, depending on different situations, which is some of what we've been discussing. Um, but that, that's all sort of in a in a civil context. In um, you know, in copyright law, um, there have been you know uh, Supreme Court rulings that basically found you know situations where. Um, intermediaries are are not 
protected. It's things like inducement, um, which is like the, the Grokster standard that was in that case. Um, but there isn't, that's not in criminal copyright law. There is no, within the, the statute, there's nothing that says that a platform could be um, liable for criminal copyright infringement based on actions of users. There's no secondary liability there. And the court, courts can't make that up. In, in, in civil law, they can sort of, you know, I don't want to say make it up because it's not entirely fair, but, you know, effectively create com, or case law around it. In with criminal issues, it has to be in the statute itself, right? Yes. Um, and so, so that that legal theory doesn't exist, <laughs> and and yet the the DOJ is sort of trying to get around it by arguing, well, you know, a few other things like you know the fraud and conspiracy stuff, um, but also just they they sort of pretend that the concept of aiding and abetting is effectively a um, secondary liability, a way around the secondary liability question. Um, but that's a very, very different standard. And, and they sort of seem to mix and match, um, you know, what, you know, which standards are, or what they're using to try and come up with a theory that, that just doesn't seem to actually exist in the law. Well, all right, let's, like, we can look at this from a number of perspectives um, without getting too deep into the philosophical aspects of all sure. this. But we could first look to the DMCA for guidance, even though it's a civil statute, mm -hmm. it's a civil safe harbor against civil claims. And in fact, the Motion Picture Association of America and others um, who are aligned with that philosophy do not believe that it is a criminal safe harbor. And right. there's actually there's actually some support for that. So, if you look at the DMCA, the DMCA basically says uh, if you follow the certain conditions for the safe harbor, as an ISP, you will not be held liable, um, and and uh, you know you you might be able to get an injunction, but on some limited basis. Mm -hmm. So, you have. Uh, a lot of case law that's evolved in that area. You have the YouTube case and VO, and where it got to the point where you have to have actual notice of specific hyperlinks right. um, before you have to go ahead and remove them. Now, let's say that relying upon that safe harbor as an ISP, you do and, not I, get I, a. I'm, I'm going to just just to reiterate that point because because you you said it and people may have missed it, but I think it's really important. Is this idea that just because you have stuff on your site that is infringing, and even if you know that there's some stuff on your site that's infringing, that doesn't make you liable, right? You have to have specific knowledge of, you know, directly like links to the content that says that this is infringing because the basis for that, which which actually is logical when you think about it, which is that if you're just hosting the, the, the stuff or, you know, or acting as a platform, you're not necessarily going to know which stuff is actually infringing and, and which is not. And that sort of came out in the, the YouTube, the Viacom YouTube case, where it turns out that like something like a hundred of the videos that Viacom sued YouTube over, Viacom had uploaded themselves for promotional purposes. Those are things that, that the site is never going to know. So the courts have determined, and the law is pretty clearly, it was meant to be this way, that you need to have 
specific knowledge of the exact content. So this, they, so the copyright holder has to send you a link and say, this is infringing, I am stating this is infringing, and then you need to take it down. Just general knowledge that there is infringement happening on the site does not make you liable for it. So That's, that's exactly right. Um, and I agree with, with your point. Um, you could also take a look at a site that maybe not have, that doesn't have say 512C, which is storage. Yep. But take one, a, a site that's kind of an information location tool and think about how weird it would be. Let's take arguably a BitTorrent search engine, mm -hmm. you know, and somebody comes there and they, they could search for metadata, which is what BitTorrent files are. And they could download a BitTorrent file. If you start saying to the site that you've got obligations that go beyond actual notice on the civil side, you could imagine how bizarre that would be. Now, a BitTorrent site, in, or, in order for it to have integrity and to analyze the requests that come in, would actually have to go and download the allegedly fringing materials <laughs> to determine whether or not someone's right that they're infringing. Right. And you could imagine that then, then they'll be sued for direct infringement. <laughs> right. So it, it make you know, it, it makes absolutely no sense at all to have a different interpretation than the, than the one that you, that you want, you indicated, but let's take a look at the structure of the DMCA. Yeah. The DMCA is a civil safe Harbor and it's proven by the structure if somebody were to give a notice and it wasn't correctly formatted it's missing say uh under penalty of perjury but it's reliable looking and 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 you know it's coming from a credible source and you know they they just forgot to put that little blurb in somebody under the dmca would be well within their rights an isp not to take it down right there are cases which say that okay you, you have the you have the perfect 10 cases Yep. But since the DMCA is only a civil defense, under the government's theory of criminal liability, that same notice could be used as circumstantial evidence of your mens rea under their distorted theory. Right. And now all of a sudden you could be held criminally liable for something where the DMCA otherwise would give you a civil safe harbor. And so, if you just look at the congressional structure, Congress's structure on the DMCA and the logic and the way they've implemented it, and the notion that DMCA is not a criminal defense, it makes absolute sense that you can't have a crime of secondary copyright infringement. Because it would create all sorts of legal gotchas in light of the DMCA safe harbor. So, you know, one could look at the DMCA itself for guidance on what the Congress was thinking is the scope of criminal liability in the Internet era. Obviously, they have not um, promulgated rules on what does a hyperlink mean, um, what does a BitTorrent file mean, uh, what does a conspiracy mean. And the last time they did anything with conspiracy, it was in the era of pirated DVDs off the back of a truck. Right. Uh, I will say this, most folks may not realize this, but in 1976, Congress removed aiding and abetting from the copyright statute completely. Yeah. And um, 
we're arguing in court as to what that means. Um, if one takes the view that the U.S. Supreme Court has taken in Dowling and in other cases, where if it's not in the four corners of the copyright statute, it doesn't count for copyright, it means there is no aiding and abetting. Right. Um, and aiding and abetting could be used for mischievous purposes in the Internet era because nobody would know what it meant. <laughs> right. When do you leave civil secondary copyright infringement behind and now enter the zone of criminality if aiding and betting is now in play um it would it would be at the discretion of creative prosecutors who would use their power and the interorum effect to scare people into settling criminal cases because there'd be no consensus on experts on what aiding and abetting on the internet means yeah Wow, and you'd have the, this weird situation where, where, um, you know, they could the the Justice Department could basically shake you down, claiming you'd be criminally liable, even if it was absolutely clear that you wouldn't even be civilly liable. That's exactly right, and uh, nobody would at that point know what to do. So, you know, when you go back and look at these cases, if you look at um, Artem Volan's case, you look at Kim Dotcom's case, these cases are civil cases in disguise. Right. They they are experimental criminal litigation um, done at the behest of the Motion Picture Association of America and the recording industry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we think ultimately that these cases are really something for Congress to look at and for the civil courts to deal with in the ever-evolving balance between the copyright monopoly and um, high technology and growth on the internet. Um, you know, we think that the economics of internet growth matter just as much as the economics of the copyright monopoly, and they need to be balanced. And it's not the criminal courts that should be doing this sort of thing. No. And, uh, you know, so ultimately, we think we'll prevail in both of these cases. And, uh, and hopefully Congress will weigh in to give everyone guidance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've, we, you know, we've mostly focused on the, the um, mega upload Kim.com stuff, even though the almost all of the stuff we've been talking about also apply to, to kick-ass torrents. Is there anything else about on the kick-ass torrents side? Sort of what, what's, uh, I mean, that one is, is relatively new. Um, so, so I guess kind of what's, what's happening there with that case. With kick-ass torrents, we have Artem Volin, who is a, a Ukrainian national. He was um, on a trip with his wife to Poland and in the United States through a, uh, a treaty with Poland, had him arrested and put in jail. He's still in jail. Mm -hmm. The Polish authorities are completely... Um, at the behest of the United States, and they're making it very difficult for our U.S. legal team to visit hmm. with uh, Artem Volin. Um, we do have good Polish counsel. Um, we do have some ways of communicating sporadically. But given the time difference, given the, um, the language barrier, uh, it is not a a proper substitute 
for in-person meetings. And, uh, you know, so we're having particular problems with meeting with Artem. We're hoping that it will be resolved soon. Um, and we're hoping that something more sinister is not going on. Um, uh, so we'll see what happens. It may very well become an issue. Um, if, in our view, if the United States created this machinery and implemented it in Poland to arrest Artem Wallen mm-hmm. uh, under the treaty, um, mutual cooperation treaty, then they have some obligation to make sure that uh, Artem can meet with U.S. counsel because he has a right to counsel so he can make informed decisions. And so evidence is not lost uh, amongst a lot of other other of his rights that are being impacted. If they can't get that done, then we, at some point, will likely make a motion to dismiss this case. It should be dismissed in the interest of justice. No. You know, I mean, as time goes by, and as he can't speak with defense counsel, it's quite likely that evidence, evidence is going to be lost. No. And uh, it just goes to show the lack of nuance that certain folks perhaps maybe in the local government have when it comes to cases like this. Um, you know, they, they try to equate a torrent file with downloading the actual content, and, it, and it's not the same. Yeah. And when you look at the complaint, the criminal complaint in Artem Volan's case, they don't make any effort to tell the court Hey, wait a second, court. Even though we're saying that one's downloading these movies or videos from kick-ass torrents, we're just kidding around. We're not really downloading it from them. We're downloading the torrent file, leaving the site behind, using our thin client to fetch it from the BitTorrent network as a whole. Right. And so a judge looking at this thing, again, puts great trust in the government officers and not knowing this nuance uh, goes ahead and and allows for certain things to be seized and certain arrests to be made and uh, so I mean this is the problem when when courts act in an ex parte fashion where they don't allow the other side to come in and make an argument yeah no it would be different both from a due process perspective as well as from just a a fairness perspective for a court to hear the other side and then just rule against you. Right. You know, at that point, at least they heard you. You could disagree. That's how our system works. But this whole thing has a really bad appearance. Yeah. And that's the biggest problem in these cases. Uh is that it's hard to fully respect what the government's doing when they act ex parte here, and for no good reason. Yeah. Uh, it's not like uh, there's such a great urgency on a torrent site that they admit has been around for over eight years. <laughs> right. And where they're admitting, at least they know or should know, the content's not on the site anyway. So if you remove the torrent site, the content's still in the cloud. Somebody will just use some other search engine to get at it. So there's no urgency. 
it's just again a, a a gaming strategy that prosecutors use to try to win rather than just go ahead and be fair and do justice and that's what these cases really tell us the same thing happened to kim.com and the others and mega upload there was a raid the entire mega upload site was taken down and there because it was a cloud storage site the contents consumer materials were on the site and consumers lost everything from wedding photos to Microsoft Word files and spreadsheets and some of it was infringing and some of it wasn't but they took it all down and to this day they have not given consumers access to their own materials and when you take a look at a situation like that you say to yourself is the Department of Justice working for Hollywood or are they the Department of Justice for everyone including consumers should they care about consumer protection and consumer rights I mean they favor ironically Hollywood's copyrights over the copyrights of materials that consumers had in the cloud yeah. where it was authorized where they put their spreadsheets and their photos in there for to, to share with others and their and their videos so there's a lot of problems that are manifesting in these cases where over time things will evolve and there are plenty of people in the Department of Justice plenty of prosecutors who probably in you know certain moments understand the bugs and hopefully they'll work to evolve their policies so that these sorts of things don't happen again yeah um yeah it's 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 bothersome and, and i think part of part of what's bothering to me at least is is the fact that you know, we had issues with with a number of the civil cases that that went on, but the fact that this has switched over to the U.S. government uh, filing criminal charges against against these sites and taking them down completely prior to any kind of you know due process or trial or you know any establishment of guilt, um, that's that's kind of scary. <laughs> it's not. Uh, it's not only scary, but how you act after that matters. Now, the United States had an opportunity to go ahead and get the material back to consumers. They didn't do it. Right. And, you know, why didn't they do it? Well, you could take a look at what they've done. They seized all of Mega Upload's assets. They went ahead and said that we're not allowed to go in after they invited us to go in that we're not allowed to go in and get access to the data so that we could save it to put on a defense case they had the hosting providers at Carpathia and Cogent which are kind of like hosting providers to major ISPs mm -hmm. over 1200 servers at Carpathia are now in a warehouse degrading every single day in the first quarter of 2012 I made a deal on behalf of Mega Upload with Carpathia to get ownership and control for Mega Upload over those servers so they could be preserved and used in the case. And the deal was that they can only be used 
for legal defense purposes and only accessed in a forensically sound way under e-discovery uh, best practices. The United States, we advised the United States of the deal. The deal was for over a million dollars, but no money would change hands and it would only be paid if at, after the case was over. So it was basically a no money down deal. Mm -hmm. The Department of Justice objected to it. And now the servers are decaying. Uh, on what basis did they object? The basis they provided makes absolutely no sense. And that is, is that it could be used to re-infringe. <laughs> and the other basis is that it had illegal materials on it because when you have over 4% of internet traffic going to those servers, there'll be all sorts of bad content on it. Mm -hmm. But we preempted that by saying it would be used only for defense purposes. Right. And isn't it, isn't it evidence? I mean, isn't that kind of important? It, it, well, that's what we say. So yeah. their argument is that they preserved about two or three servers worth. Forget about the other 1,200 or so. And that's hmm. what the evidence will be. And we said they're cherry picking. So what this is really all about, again, is they put Hollywood's rights over the rights of consumers. They put Hollywood's rights over that of an ISP, that is the government. And the government will do anything to prevent Kim.com and the others from putting up a robust defense by having access to their own materials. Now, if you go back and try getting access to those materials, I could tell you what's going to happen. And this is with certainty. A large percentage of those servers' drives will have failed. Right. And we know that because the caching servers that were located over at Cogent. Many of those drives have failed, but those Hollywood wants access to, so they're going to pay to get them fixed. <laughs> wow. And so we have a lot of things that are going on right here where anybody would look at this and, and say, you know what, the folks who are working in the DOJ on this case, while we respect them, and respect their right to disagree, could be doing a better job of being fair, could do a better job of having the appearance of fairness. Yeah. And uh, it's it's a lesson for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, you have that basic argument, which is like, if, if you're so sure of your case, you know, uh, let it let it actually be heard fairly. Uh, I mean, I know that's not necessarily the way the Justice Department works these days. They're they're very much about stacking the deck against anyone, but um, it's it's definitely eye opening and 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 very very troubling. Yeah. Um, and uh, we've we've gone over our usual time, but it's such an interesting conversation. So, but but just to kind of close it out, um, you know, we've talked about these two cases that you're you're involved with now. But obviously, you know, as I mentioned in the opening, you've been working on these kinds of issues, you know, going back for for quite some time. Um, and so, I, I guess I, I wonder if you have sort of an overall take on kind of this this sort of constant ongoing, never ending war between um, sort of legacy content entertainment industry and innovative technology companies. All right. Uh, I suppose some of my views may surprise some folks who are listening to this. Um, 
I love Hollywood. I love when I say I love Hollywood. I love Hollywood is like that uh, rhyme. You know, when they're good, they're very, very good, and when they're bad, they're hard. <laughs> right. Uh, Hollywood's doing a lot of great things. They're leading the world in technology, in the arts. Um, they have wonderful movies, high production value. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm very much involved in the video game industry. And from that perspective, I also have a lot of interactions with Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, some of my startup companies have created some of the streaming technology that has, you know, most of the major videos and movies are streamed using technology from one of my companies. I love Hollywood, but there has to be a better balance between the policies that give Hollywood the ability to innovate with those that allow for technology companies to innovate, for internet companies to innovate. Um, many times folks will only look at the economics of movies and recordings, and they won't look at the economics of the increased friction on dual-use technologies from interpretations of copyright law that could be draconian. And so we have a situation where there isn't maximal economic output. And these types of decisions on where to draw the line, both civilly and criminally, should be dealt with better by Congress. Um, Congress should look, what is the impact of trying to hold a search engine criminally liable for hyperlinks arising out of search results. Yeah. And if it's going to have a chilling effect on search engines starting up or being located in the United States or reaching critical mass, and there's an economic value that's associated with that or a societal quality of life value associated with that, it needs to be taken into consideration. Right now, what's going on is that, especially on the civil side, courts are winging it. They're using some gestalt test of whether or not it bothers their own sensibilities, and we have inconsistent results. And on the criminal side, uh, Congress needs to be more specific and needs to act on where the line is drawn for Internet sites so they're not chilled. So the common thread is that this is really a battle between economics of Hollywood and economics of tech companies. It should be dealt with by Congress and not by the courts. And, and that's frankly the theme that we've had going back to the, the mid 1990s when I started getting involved in these types of cases, even the MP3 board case yeah. in 2000. You know, that case said that hyperlinks are not direct infringement. Um, it was actually settled for no money changing hands. But that case made it loud and clear on where is the line drawn for search engines who are being accused of providing nothing more than hyperlinks. And obviously, Google became a major player in the evolution of the law in that area. And now we're finally into the criminal realm.
and uh, we'll see where this takes us. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's a that's a really good summary. I mean, the point that 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 I've tried to make for years, and and people always accuse me also of like, you know, hating Hollywood or, or hating the entertainment industry, and and I. I kind of feel, I think like you do, that the reverse is true. I mean, I, I, I think they do really great creative work uh, quite frequently, and, it, and it's, it's really good. Um, I just personally wish that they, they would recognize that, you know, new technologies and new innovations are, are not the enemy. <laughs> that, that, you know, very frequently they're, they're you know, a solution or, or an opportunity to create an even larger market. And, and, you know, I go back and I've made this point over and over again that you look at the history of sort of every new technology and seeing the legacy industry freak out about it, whether it was, you know, radio or, um, you know, uh, uh, vinyl records or tape recorders or, you know, television, cable TV, you know, um, the Internet itself, DVRs, um, VCRs, obviously, is the big one. You know, and over and over again, they would sort of freak out and, and complain about this stuff. And, and then in the long run, it turned out they were actually, you know, a way to expand their business. Yes. Um, and, and it just seems like it would be so much easier rather than going to court and fighting every one of these things if they just learned to, you know, join in and embrace it and figure out ways to, to adapt and, and to adopt these new technologies. No, no doubt. I, uh, I'm reminded of the late Jack Valente, who I had a great deal of respect for, had the honor to meet and to speak with when he was concerned about the VCR he, making a metaphor to the Boston Strangler. Yeah. And it ended up making Hollywood billions of dollars after the Sony decision validated it as being lawful do use technology. Yep. And, you know, those same types of issues are continuing to occur. And, you know, we'll see where things go, but ultimately I am a true believer that Hollywood and technology and Silicon Valley need each other and ultimately um, at some point we'll be able to reconcile with one another so that this type of Fred Flintstone versus Bonnie Rubble type of uh, <laughs> disputes will, will wither away. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. Yeah, and and I think that the the exclamation point on the the Jack Valenti story, and I've brought this up before, is is that you know you're right. He made the the Boston Strangler analogy, but um, the the really incredible thing was that it was just four years after the Boston Strangler analogy that that home. Um, home video revenue surpassed box office revenue for the movie industry four years from him saying that it would kill the industry until it was the um, major revenue driver for their industry which is just fairly astounding when you think about it and and you know over and over again and I, and I hope and I keep wishing that 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 what you say is true and that it won't always seem like a fight and that they'll learn to to embrace and, and adapt but it doesn't doesn't seem to be happening yet. <laughs> So, one day one day one day anyways uh this is a really great conversation I, I i really appreciate you taking the time um really really interesting i'm sure everyone listening has has enjoyed it um and uh and we'll definitely have to have you back in the future as as these cases continue and and as things happen um but 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 thanks so much for for having a really interesting conversation um and uh and thanks for joining us thanks mike i really appreciate it thank you Thanks, and, and thanks to everyone listening as well, and uh, we'll be back next week. Someone, no, yeah. huh. to grab a shovel and dig up the tap. Uh. If we don't stand up to them, someone.
want no cat. 